Welcome to the First Right Podcast, a weekly conservative news show brought to you by Restoration of America. I'm your host, Doug Truax, founder and president of Restoration of America. Today we're blessed to have a super interesting guest, Dwight Chapin, longtime personal aide to former President Richard Nixon. Mr. Chapin witnessed a lot of history up close and has a new book out that tells that story. All right, Dwight, thanks so much for coming on and being on the show. Well, terrific, Doug. Nice to be with you. All right, so great new book out, uh, uh, really good, interesting stuff. Before we get to that and your life uh, as an aide and all the, all the time you had in the White House, just give right. us an idea of what your life has been like after the White House up to now, what led to you writing the book, that kind of thing. Okay, terrific. Well, after leaving the White House, I went to United Airlines and I was there and then ended up being indicted, so I had to leave. It was a public company. After I took care of my obligation to the government and served my time in prison, uh, I published a magazine. <laughs> Believe it or not, the name of the magazine was Success. It was uh, uh, located actually in Chicago and owned by W. Clement Stone, a philanthropist and a wealthy insurance man there in Chicago. And I published that magazine for 13 years and then uh, left and was moved out to Asia to run the Asian operations of Hill and Knowlton, which was a huge public relations company. I did that for another six or seven years and then decided to start my own business. Uh, I had my own company for 30 years and I did strategic marketing and counseling uh, to corporations and to CEOs and uh, anyone that wanted to use my services. I decided to write the book uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted my family to know and understand what had happened to me, uh, why, why it was that I had to go to prison and what that was all about. And I also wanted to put down, because I was one of the few remaining Nixon people uh, from the White House years, I wanted to put down what I remembered about the man and, and about the era uh, that we all lived through. And it was important for me to do that because I, I had come to the conclusion that people thought there were only two things about Richard Nixon, either China or Watergate. And there was much more to the man, and I wanted to get that onto the public record uh, and do what I could to uh, have him better understood by, by the population. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, that's that's really important to get down because you're right. So many people now say, oh, just Watergate. It's like, no, no, no. There was a lot of remarkable things about the man, and I'm, I'm appreciative of you doing this. So if you go back, 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 how did you get to be his aide? How, tell us that story, how that came to be, that he picks you, and there you are. Yeah, well, Doug, I, I was a young man at the University of Southern California, and uh, between, you know, during the summer, uh, the rule in my family was you always had a summer job and I didn't happen to have one in 1962. And uh, that was the year that Nixon was running for governor out in California. He had lost to Jack Kennedy in 1960. So he was back out in California in 62. And dad said, I know someone at the Nixon headquarters Maybe, uh, maybe with your interest in politics, you could get uh, some kind of a position there. And I went down and I was interviewed by a young crew cut guy, 32 years old, who was a campaign manager and his name was Bob Haldeman. And as you may know, Bob sure. 
ended up eventually being Nixon's uh, chief of staff. But that that was the start of my uh, association with Richard Nixon in 1962. Uh, then I, I moved east uh, in around 1965. And I volunteered to go down to his office in the evening. Uh, of course, he, I should say that he had lost to uh, Pat Brown there in that race for the governorship. So he moved back to New York. And uh, I would go down after hours and help out at the law firm answering correspondence. And the person teaching me how to do that was none other than Mrs. Nixon. And she really got to know me. And I think the key to... Uh, how I ended up being Nixon's personal aide ties right to Mrs. Nixon. She got comfortable with me. Uh, she trusted me. Uh, she undoubtedly passed that word on to her husband, uh, Dick Nixon, and said, you know, maybe you ought to look at this man, young man as a, a possible aide. He did. He hired me. And uh, I started working for him in 1967. It was just the two of us traveling around the country, and then, of course, that matured into a, a, a presidential-type campaign, and I served by his side all the way through uh, the election itself and then up to the inauguration, and then he invited me to join the staff at the White House. Wow, great um, story. And so, uh, yeah. how often is it... It's the wife's influence sometimes, right? The spouse, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, if you get in but, good you know, there, right? I, I, they, they, but I mean, that's my theory on it. Sure, uh, you, sure. When, when you're working for people like this, mm -hmm. uh, the important thing is trust. You, you have to be able to trust the people that are working with you. Uh, that's another thing about my book. I, I, didn't, I didn't write my book 10 minutes after I left the White House. I've waited almost 50 years to write right. this book. Uh, it gives it a whole different perspective. And the, and the motivation of the individuals that are writing the books, I mean, when they do it immediately, it's either for profit or they're worried about, you know, using kind of using the book to land a job or something. Right. When I avoided all that by waiting so many years. Yeah, good for you. I appreciate you doing that. I know our, our audience does as well, because that is, in this day and age, it is getting very annoying when you see somebody, like you said, quickly write the book so they can make a buck or whatever they're doing. They've got their vendetta or whatever. It's 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 not it's not good. So that's it's good for you to be the, be kind of old school this way, right? The way it used to be, you know, loyal and trustworthy and all that. So good for you on that. Uh, well, I, it may be old school, but uh, you know, it's one of the things I think that we've got to be focusing on the country today, and that's this whole level of trust. We've lost uh, respect of our elected officials. We've, we're, we're, there is no trust factor, uh, particularly among institutions. And this, this is huge. Uh, if we're going to make this democracy continue and work the way that the founders had in mind, one of the things we've got to be able to do is to trust not only the institutions, but the people that are in these uh, leadership positions. That's right. That's right. right. Well, we'll get to it in a second, too, about the media back in your day. But I yeah. interview a lot of media people, uh, you know, that are obviously conservative, but they can start to identify the moment when they realize that the most of the media was Democrat and running against, you know, the conservatives. And so we've had this 
we when we lose trust in the media, then it, then the accountability starts to slip all over the place. So it's it's I couldn't agree with you more. It's a it's a difficult time. So uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get back uh, to a better place on that. So if you're so you're the aide, and uh, I was in the army for a while. I was an aide to a general for a year, and uh, so I know a, a little bit about that. And I understand you know when you're an aide to a politician or a CEO or a military officer, you're going through the day to day, and you're there you know bearing the brunt of the of the difficult situations. I mean, there's some good things, obviously, but some the, the brunt of the difficult situations, and, and it can become quite a pressure cooker. So, talk about that a little bit, and how you how you how that uh, how you handled that. Was that different than you thought it was going to be? Any anything you care care to share about that side of the job? Right. Well, uh, first of all, <laughs> I had no idea how it was going to be because uh, I had never been there before, but I. Uh, uh, the good Lord gifted me with a, an intuitive sense, I think. Uh, and I, as I got to know uh, Mr. Nixon better and better, I, I understood what it was that made him perform at his peak level. And my, my job really uh, was to make sure that within the, let, I, let's use the term bubble, that that space immediately around him as we traveled, wherever we went, and so forth, that that he that he had everything he needed in order to perform at his uh, highest uh, highest possible level. So that meant managing everything from the phone calls to the visitors coming in to see him. It meant making sure that he had all of his preparatory materials available. It meant it meant saying no to a lot of people that wanted to, you know, give him advice or come in to see him when we were on the road. So, but, but, but the idea uh, in terms of uh, the, the responsibility I had was his operation, making sure that he had everything that he needed. Uh, some people in, in recent years, I noticed, have referred to this more as a body man or use that that kind of terminology I, I think I was fortunate I got in ahead of that I wasn't I wasn't a senior advisor or anything like that but I I was given a lot of latitude to make determinations on what would be appropriate for him to do in a given situation and to help shepherd him through that time and uh, uh, I, I have nothing but the fondest memories of, of the campaign time. It changed when we got to the White House. There's a heck of a difference between running for office and then governing. So once we made that transition into the governing, uh, have in mind, this is a man that had been in the House of Representatives, the Senate. He had been vice president under Eisenhower for eight years. He, he knew what he wanted and, and how he wanted things to work. Plus, he had an incredible, competent uh, chief of staff in Bob Haldeman, who was uh, a managerial genius. Uh, and so that really helped me kind of transition from the campaign type operation into the governing type situation that we had. Right, it's good transition. Yeah, and that's, I can't, I, I can't imagine the difference between campaign to governing, so, and I've always thought that I see the the ramp up in the campaign, and it's so uh, you know frenetic and everything, and then all of a sudden, 
inauguration. Now you got to get to governing, and it's just like a total. It seems like it'd be a total 180, but you know you got to be ready to handle it. You see these guys yeah. take that and time to ramp up, right, until to inauguration day. It's it's about policy, and it's about getting along. Let me make a point, Doug. I was watching the other day in preparation for uh, the publicity side of my book. I was going back through all of the video of the China trip. I had been very involved with Dr. Kissinger and putting together the trip to China. And what I came across that really got my attention was that the day that Nixon left for Beijing, he walked out of the South Protocol portico of the White House toward the helicopter, and he stopped. And he said, he went up to the microphone, and he said, I want to thank Majority Leader Mike Mansfield for being here this morning, and Speaker Carl Albert, and the other bipartisan members of Congress. And that reminded me that when he took office, he said that he wanted to have the bipartisan leaders of Congress come to the White House no less than once a week to meet with him on policy. And they did that for month in, month out. Those leaders would come and they would meet with him. And they got so much done. The Nixon accomplishments are, the number are huge. How did he, why did that happen? Because these men talked to one another. In today's world, if the bipartisan leaders go up to meet with uh, the president at the White House, it's national news. Right. Where back there, they were going every week, they were sitting down, they were talking about what was in the best interest of the country, and they were acting on it. It was a hell of a different type situation. Yeah, big changes, absolutely. And I was going to ask you about the China piece. So you were heavily involved in planning that. And so what, what's your take then now on uh, our relationship with China nowadays? Well, I, I think if uh, President Nixon were alive and with us, I mean, he, he let, let me make a point. He said 50 years ago, in 1972, he said, in 50 years, which is right now, we are going to be adversaries and we have to be able to talk to one another. That was one of the reasons he stated that he went to China. So here we are 50 years later and we've got to be able to talk to one another. The bottom line, I think, though, is that as this whole relationship with China developed, we let the commerce side of things, the, the doing business side of things, the economic side of it, uh, take the lead with our business people and so forth. And we, we took and put into a secondary position the strategic interests of the nation itself. And I think that needs to be flipped. There's no question that we can work with China, we can do we can have trade with China and so forth. It's got to be on a level playing field and it's got to be fair and we got to stick to that. But as a nation, we need to take and put our national interest ahead of the commercial interest. And that just has to be a rule of thumb. And our business people may not like that, but it's something that they've got to accept. Because if we do not do that, we are going to see China not only undermine us, but take over in large sectors of the world. And I don't believe we should do that because that sure is not in our national interest either. Right, that's such a wise point about having the national interest first and what's happened. 
I think yeah. a lot of the, uh, I'm a business guy myself too, in addition to uh, politics, but watching the capitalists turn into, you know, uh, such globalists in the sense that it feels like so many American business people would be willing to sell out their country to make an extra dollar and, you know, wherever that goes and whatever. And, you know, I think Trump tapped into this too. And it's a, it's a, that kind of sellout mentality. And it's kind of the, it, it just was, it has been allowed to grow. And to your point, we need to go back to the days like, hey, before we do anything, let's think about our own country and our own people first. It doesn't mean we're not gonna go there and, and you know, have a relationship with them and trade with them and all that. But let's begin in that spot. Because if we don't do that, then you're right. It just kind of takes on a life of its own. Right. Uh, in a uh, moment of frustration one time, I remember, and this is, this is uh, an incredible quote, I, Nixon was so upset about the business person's interest in the almighty dollar he said, Dwight, you know, there's no one as small as a big businessman. I mean, they do not get the big picture. If, if we do not keep this democracy in shape and having it operate and the free enterprise system operating in a fair way and so forth, that they're, they're not going to have those profits and, and their mentality is going to shift. And, and I think we've seen part of that happen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's been hard to watch in our country, especially the middle, lower income, you know, the closed factories. I mean, here in Illinois alone, I mean, there's just all these great towns, Rockford, Decatur, they used to do great with these manufacturing places. They're just devastated. Yes, we, we have a lot, tremendous amount of work to do in that area. And, and of course, as you know, Doug, there's, there's nothing that uh, does a man good better than the dignity of work. For they for they're providing for their family and so forth. I mean, our our handout mentality is is an erosive thing, That's and right. and that denominator it just does not work, uh, and, and we can't afford it either. So right. we've, got to, we've got to shift it. And on that subject, I really uh, feel that there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done in the school systems. And, and the, the educational side of this whole ledger, we have got to we've got to be teaching people why this is so, and right. we're not doing that. That's right. There's a lot of things that are wrong today. <laughs> we have a lot of. It's, it's a difficult time, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah but, so. there may, but 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 let me say, yeah. there, there may be a lot of things wrong. But I wish I were 22 again. I wish I was going to be around for the next segment. This this ride that we're about ready to come into or approach sure. has got sure. all these challenges. But what a great time to be alive! What a great time to be solving these problems. That's right. That's amen right. To, amen to that. And I always tell people, hey, no matter how bad it gets right now, would you rather live in this time in this country or some other time in some other country? You know, you go back a couple centuries, and you know <laughs> this is. Still a pretty good deal. We just got to work it out, you know. Yes, a part 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 of uh, Nixon's stump speech back in 1968 was he said, "Folks, he says the traffic's all one way. Nobody's nobody's trying to leave here." That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You got that right. Still the same situation. So, okay. Uh, well, speaking of interesting times, so uh, on the media piece, uh, and then also. 
the, the slanting of the media, and then also the slanting of the DOJ, FBI. So we've got the uh, raid of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, when you were in, uh, your boss was uh, uh, treated unfairly many times, and uh, there, was, there was issues there as well. So what's your take on what's going on right now with the Department of Justice and where this is going with Trump and everything? Yes, well, I, I, I really do not know. Uh, I don't believe any of us know as of this moment uh, exactly what uh, that warrant said. Uh, I happen to be uh, a friend of David Ferriero's. He was the former archivist of the United States, a Democrat, but a, a terrific guy. I had worked with him on the renovation of the Nixon Library. And he, he's the kind of man that I, that I know that if there was a uh, issue on getting the documents uh, from, from President Trump, that, that he was the kind of man that would negotiate and have lawyers go meet with the lawyers and eventually they would come to a, a conclusion. I think that if the uh, attorney general and the director of the FBI uh, went to that judge in, in Florida and, and pu pushed for this uh, uh, going after these documents at Mar-a-Lago and, uh, and seized them just because there were documents there, it is, to me, outrageous. Now, it may have been wrong for President Trump to have those documents there, but, but again, that was a negotiation type thing and you do not take and do an FBI raid on any former president. I don't care if he's a Republican, Democrat, or whatever. It's not what we should be doing. So uh, a, a real critical eye has to be cast on this. We, we do need to know what happened and we need to know the specifics. And I think the longer that the FBI takes and the Department of Justice, of clarifying this. Now, I, I know when you're doing investigations, you you need to keep them uh, curtailed and, and confidential until you get to the end of the line. But this kind of qualifies for a special consideration in my mind, because the longer they leave the people uh, out there speculating, the worse all of this speculation is going to get. And it does not work in the favor of our democracy. That's right. It's right. a dangerous precedent and we cannot go down this path. I just, yeah, right. nobody wants to see this. Even people on the left are saying now, uh, you know, we, sh we need to be thinking about this and, and, uh, and not doing anything like this again. But now, no, nobody's really stopping them. So I don't know what they're going to do next, you know. Can I, can I mention about the media side of this for a sure. minute? Uh, I gave a talk on uh, it's, it, it's part of, you can get it on C-SPAN. I gave it on the, at the Library of Congress on June 17th on the anniversary of the break-in of Watergate. And I, I said Watergate could not happen today. I mean, back in the old days when Watergate happened, we had ABC, CBS, and NBC. We had Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, and Howard K. Smith. We had no blogs. We had no talk radio. We had no cable television systems. We had none of that. And, and I would venture to say that the reason that we have such a 50-50 split in the country now is at least the thing is competitive. At least the conservative side of this equation is being heard and, and you know, you're part of that. And, and this is incredibly important. 
back in the Nixon days, we didn't have that. Right. We had to fight this thing all ourselves, and we were up against uh, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, uh, a demo Democratic-oriented investigated prosecutors, and a media that was slanted toward the Democrats. So we were really up against it. And I don't think if it happened, if Watergate were to happen in today's world, that Nixon would ever have to resign. Oh, that's a really interesting point. And it goes to uh, the perspective in your reference point to the time you're living in, where we might think, oh, we got it so bad. But like what you just said, there are a lot of emerging, you know, conservative, well, already established conservative outlets and more emerging, which helps level the playing field. We're, we're, we're fighting. We're fighting. And uh, uh, as has been made by many intelligent conservatives, we, we need to be encouraging Republicans to get, Republican and particularly conservatives, to get involved starting at the school board level, the local community level. We need to get in there and, and start weighing in. The Democrats are very good at that. They have done it for years. They, they make a profession out of it. Mm -hmm. Our people go to work and come home and are raising kids and so forth, and they don't have time to go to these uh, civic events and these civic opportunities, and we cannot afford not to do it. We've got to, we've got to become more involved. That's right, taking our own country back. Self-governance. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. It's like if you're busy raising a family, working hard, it's, it, it falls down the list. But it yeah. should be going back up because of the importance of the time that we live in. So I, I totally encourage everybody I talk to in the same vein, and we're doing our part to help people. Yes. I mean, with the Democrats, they've always done this. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's almost a, a second occupation with them. Right. And we haven't, we haven't paid attention with it. And, and I mean, parts of this roots itself back. I remember when there were 250,000 people uh, demonstrating against the war on Vietnam back at, in the ellipse in the Nixon years. And a, a lot of those people went on to the universities and the higher uh, uh, institutions of learning and became professors and so forth. And they've propagated uh, a, a, an ideology into our young people, and that's been absorbed. And now they're raising their kids and teaching them. Living. And we, we have to get back to the fundamentals of what this nation was about. That's right, losing the fundamentals and the foundation of our Christian faith, too. You know, we got to get back to that. That's, you know, you have too many generations that don't even know what it, what it means to be a Christian. I think we fall, you know, the founder said, you have to have good moral people to keep this thing running. And uh, there's certain things we got we got to keep an eye on that, too, for sure. It's, uh, yeah, and, difficult times. I, I, I believe, I don't mean to interrupt no, you. No, go ahead. Yeah. I, I believe that translates into excellent candidates. I mean, I know you were a candidate out there in Illinois, but and, and God only knows what your next step's going to be, but, but, but people need to get involved and good people need to be running. That's right, that's right, absolutely, yeah. Good news, the good news is that the Republicans have a terrific bench. I mean, we've got some incredibly fine talent uh, coming up. Well, that's right. That's right. And I, I've often said that the uh, upside for us is that we don't get a pass on anything. 
the left, the <laughs> Democrats get a pass on everything, especially when it comes to mainstream media. And we have to be super sharp and they don't, but it's gonna catch up with you at some point because it makes you better and it makes you lazy, you know? So we're, we're on the better side. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree. We got, a, we got a good slate coming up. So um, last question for you. So what are you looking for, for people to learn about President Nixon as they go through your book? Maybe the good, some of the bad, so, you know, what, what do you hope to have them learn about the man uh, once they're done with your book? Well, we, we, we need to start off with the idea that, that President Nixon was human. You need to understand where he came from, from Whittier, uh, that he was a Quaker, uh, that he believed in peace at the center, that he was anti-war, that he, when he was young, lost two brothers to tuberculosis. Uh, here is a young man that uh, got into Harvard, but he couldn't go to Harvard because his parents couldn't afford the train ticket. Uh, he did end up going to Duke to law school. He worked his way up. This is a man that is a self-made man. He was a very brilliant man. As people read more about him, they will understand that, that he had an incredible grasp of what the United States was about. But as Tom Wicker, uh, one of the uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize New York Times authors wrote in his book, his book was entitled One of Our Own. And he wrote about the, the, the heritage of Richard Nixon and the fact that he, he really truly was one of us. And, and, and that gave him a specialness. It gave him a sense of understanding what the American people were about. Uh, so you couple that with his extraordinary uh, sense of strategic uh, visionary capabilities. I mean, he, he, he saw way ahead of time the opportunity to go to China and to open that up, and he did it only only a conservative Republican would have been able to pull that off. He got the arms control talks going and, and executed the SALT agreement with the Russians. He brought about the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the all-volunteer army, Title IX for women, uh, OSHA. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff was, was maybe in today's conservative world was a little too progressive, but it was things that he knew needed to happen. He took, Doug, he took segregation in the South from an 80% segregated uh, school systems down to 10%. And most important of all, he took, when he went into office, there were 510,000 troops in Vietnam. You, you would know this from your uh, military background. When he left, there were 10,000 and they were on their way out. So this was a man who had a hell of a record of accomplishment. And, and I would give credit by saying not only was it Nixon's work, but I go back to that idea that he worked with Carl Albert. He worked with Mike Mansfield. He knew those other senators on both sides, and, and they were able to sit in the council, the high councils of government, and make decisions and get things done and, and, and keep this nation 
as unified as possible, even under the cloud of Vietnam. Yeah, amazing accomplishments. He's a remarkable man, for sure. You, of all people, know that. I, I think we've all, especially the conservative side, read things here and there and said, wow, there's, there's always more to him than, you, than meets the eye, especially the further we get away from it. So what a credit to him and to our country that you wrote this book. So thank you for that. And uh, we wish you the best as you roll it out. And, and uh, we're going to encourage our audience to go get a copy and read up on it and uh, make sure we have the correct memory of President Nixon, thanks to you. So I appreciate you coming on the show, Dwight. Uh, Doug, thank you very much. Great meeting you and nice being on the show. Have a great day. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and for supporting conservative media. Don't forget that by working together and staying diligent, we conservatives can bring our country back to true greatness. Until next week, let's all keep praying that God will continue to bless America. First Right, a new kind of news summary without the liberal slant. Every morning, in your inbox, always free. Subscribe by texting First Right to 30161. That's First Right, all caps, one word, to 30161.